If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. Today's passage, it deals with the uh, sufferings of Jesus Christ. And I mean, normally we covered this prior to Easter, but uh, for those of you who, who are maybe new to All Saints, I've been doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we just, you know, we didn't get through it by Easter. So uh, maybe it feels a little discombobulating to go back to Jesus' sufferings now, but um, actually, it's, just, it's never a bad time to think about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We read from Mark, I mean, John eighteen twenty eight. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they replied, if you were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews objected, but we have no right to execute anyone. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked him, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate replied, am I a Jew? It was your own people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Well, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate, you know, so cynically replies, what is truth? With this, he went out to the Jews and said, I find no basis for charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had just taken part in a rebellion. Then Jesus took, uh, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and, and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Try this mic, guys. Will this work better? Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Behold the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law and according to the law, he must die because he has claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. He asked Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you, probably a reference here to Caiaphas, the high priest, is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Behold your king, Pilate said to the Jews, and they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. You know, that's, that's apostasy, isn't it? That's apostasy by Israel. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Our Father in heaven, do you um, help us even through all the technical glitches, um, help us to hear your word and help me to speak it you know, clearly and effectively, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. In John 17, uh, those of you who have been through the sermon series, uh, 17 is just is famous in Christian literature because Jesus there prays for his disciples in the upper room, and he prays that they would be one, that they would be unified. And then the story goes on, um, the disciples abandon him, and Jesus is the last man standing. But what I want you to notice in our passage here is the astonishing unity that is achieved uh, by the end. And it's a unity, certainly not the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, but it is a a unity of strange bedfellows. We have Jew and Roman, governor and priest, soldier and temple official, and most importantly, a crowd, a mob, um, who are all united. By the end of the story, they are united in one purpose. They even share a same confession of faith. What is that? Caesar is king. And everyone's hatred and anger and vengeance converges on a single victim, which we call a scapegoat. You know, there are four gospels, four different ways of telling Jesus' story. And one of the things we do, if you're not familiar with the Bible, we try and um, listen to the original author to see if, how God wants to speak to us differently from each of the authors. Well, what John is doing in this passion story, it, really he sets it up as a clash of kingdoms. There's a kingdom of this world where Caesar is king, and this kingdom is united in hatred and violence. And Jesus says there's another king kingdom. Uh, where he is king. What I, what I like to do is it kind of explore the two things, the kingdoms and the scapegoat, because it's very significant how the two dovetail in the passage. All right. Let me get a drink. To do that, we begin with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was either a career politician or a soldier who had risen up through the ranks to become a provincial governor. The governor of Judea was definitely not a posh assignment in the Roman Empire. <laughs> you know, Judea would have been kind of the you know, armpit of the empire. He probably hoped that after an effective tour of duty in the, in the tur- turbulent Middle East, it would lead to better political opportunities with less troublesome subjects that he'd have to govern. 
Um, only it wasn't meant to be. So Pilate, uh, he was accused by the Jews, rightly so, of being um, arrogant and doing all kinds of offensive behaviors. He riled them up. And interestingly enough, Pilate, he disappears from the records of human history only four years after the crucifixion of Jesus in AD 37. But the Jewish leaders know how to push his buttons. They deliver Jesus to Pilate under the pretense that he is the king of the Jews. That claim, a claim to apparent kingship, provides them with a weighty charge against Jesus because anybody who's claiming to be a king is, uh, is disloyal to Caesar and uh, he will be condemned as a traitor and be executed. And then they also push the button further. He said, they say, if you don't agree with us, we'll, we will accuse you of disloyalty to Caesar, that you're not protecting Caesar's interests here in Judea. So what Pilate does is he takes Jesus aside to cross-examine him about his kingship. We have this lengthy you know, interchange between the two of them. The first question, Jesus doesn't answer directly. The second question, he answers in a way that only, is only recorded in the Gospel of John. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. And he goes on, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And what do you think he's saying by that? Well, a lot of things. Um, most significantly, he's saying, you know, my kingdom isn't advanced you know, by the normal means. If you are an aspirant king, I mean, how do aspirant kings gain power and become the new king? I mean, it's always through violence. It's only, um, the only way to make it to the top is you threaten and you manipulate and you imprison and you kill. But Jesus says, I am a king of truth. And, and how, do you how do you preside as a king of truth? It's, it's only through you know, persuasion, through persuasive words and persuasive actions. We've talked about this before, how all of the miracles Jesus performed were actually kingdom signs. Um, Jesus gave sight to the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He touched and cleansed lepers. He liberated the demon-possessed. He healed the sick. He calmed the winds and the waves. He fed the hungry by multiplying loaves and fish. It was through these truthful actions that he was saying, this is what my kingdom will be like when it finally comes. You remember also how he, he would love to take uh, from the marginalized groups of the first century um, people and welcome them into a circle of disciples, granting them a status and dignity which the culture did not. Um, women, for instance, are, were made as disciples, which was very uncouth for a Jewish rabbi. His 12 apostles represent 12 very different kinds of guys. On one hand, you've got a tax collector who is subservient to the Romans. On the other hand, you have a zealot who is nothing other than a revolutionary. He takes them both into this new community. But most of all, it was the way that he preached. He preached the truth. And if you ever read the words of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, the statements of Jesus, uh, I think you'll agree that nobody else you know, talks like this. Um, in fact, he stood up at one point and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And to which the world replies very cynically, a.k.a. Pilate, what is truth? Like, what use do I have for truth? 
What? I mean, a pragmatic, hard-nosed politician like me, I have neither the time or the patience for philosophies. He might have easily just, just as easily have said, of what use is truth in a world of power? History records that uh, Pilate ruled with an iron fist. He put military standards around the city of Jerusalem with a picture of the empire. You know the Jews love that. He squashed multiple rebellions with, with enormous um, military display of violence. He used the temple funds, not for the temple, but to build a Roman aqueduct. Of what use is truth in a world of power? All right, here's how it dovetails with the second idea. Rene Girard is a Christian anthropologist who has written more extensively than probably any other writer alive on this concept of um, the scapegoat mechanism. You say, well, what is that? It's a little different. Girard, Girard's scapegoat is a little different than the scapegoat of the Old Testament Levitical system, which I'll probably talk about next week. But what, he's an anthropologist, so he studies all these different cultures in the world. He reads all of these you know, texts and, and myths of different societies in the world. And he discovers that the scapegoating mechanism is everywhere in human history. That during times of social crisis, society directs all of their energy towards a bad guy, a villain, a, a, a scapegoat. And that the various tensions that exist within that society, that they can be sort of harmoniously brought together and... Uh, all of the tensions can be released through a communal act of shared violence against an agreed-upon victim so that when everybody turns against the scapegoat, we're all happy. We're all united. We're all together. Gerard finds, as he studies uh, human history, that it doesn't matter if the scapegoat, scapegoat is innocent or guilty. All that matters is that the society agrees that the scapegoat is a social contagion that must be removed. You might think of it like this, um, when there's a, um, a thunderstorm coming in and the air is just full of charged particles and electricity. There's electricity in the society. There's just all kinds of charge and there's a lightning rod on the top of the building over there. It all coalesces to strike upon that one victim. Now, as I said, Gerard is a, um, he is a Christian, and what he believes is that behind this collective violence is none other than Satan, the prince of this world, and that this is the satanic or pagan way of organizing communities throughout history. Every society has had this need for an agreed-upon villain who is sacrificed. And yeah, that's the way that Satan has been doing things since the beginning of human history. Not surprisingly then, Gerard recognizes that the scapegoat mechanism is very hard for any one of us to resist. He calls it, in his words, a social avalanche. An avalanche catching people up into an... Sorry, catching people up into it and crushing all that would stand in its way, which is a very apt description if you think about it, because Pilate is caught up in this avalanche. He has repeatedly interviewed Jesus. He has come to the conclusion that Jesus is not guilty of anything, and yet at the end of the day, Pilate cannot resist the impulse of the crowd. Because every scapegoating mechanism has to have an enraged crowd. And here's the key. This is the most unusual, 
unthinkable page in human history, the Son of God becomes their willing scapegoat. At the arrest, trial, and condemnation of Jesus, Israel and Rome, strange bedfellows, are united in their bloodlust to kill the one person they believe is disrupting their social peace and harmony. And Jesus, the Son of God, the innocent scapegoat willingly takes upon himself all of the violence of humanity. And in doing so, he conquers it. He conquers it through self-giving love. Amen. <laughs> I mean, you have two kingdoms, two diametrically opposed ways of operating. Satanic unity that is achieved through violence And what we'll find, like Trinitarian unity that he prayed for in John 17, that is achieved through self-giving love. Well, it's such a rich passage. I can't touch on everything in it. Um, There's so many different multiple levels of irony. He offers to release to them Barabbas. We've talked about this before. Barabbas simply means son of the father. That's how you translate Barabbas. They, he offers to, to release to them, um, release from crucifixion, this son of the father. And instead, they end up taking the son of the father. Um, another level of irony. Jesus is dressed in a purple robe and given a crown of thorns in that twisted parody of royalty. And after being abused by the soldiers and rid- ridiculed as the king of the Jews, he's presented to the crowd as the king of the Jews. Behold the man. And he is. He's all of that. Although they don't realize it. And just as everyone thinks this is the victim who will bring us peace. He is. (laughs) But not in the way they ever imagined. Jesus brings unity and peace through his death, his subsequent resurrection, and his establishment of the church, the body of Christ. He brings us, like totally disparate people who don't agree with each other on lots of political things and whatever. He brings us into one body that we might live in, in self-giving love. And so I think it's a very important but neglected uh, uh, perspective on the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, not to say that's the only perspective. No way. I'll talk more about it in, uh, other perspectives next week. But how, how might we apply this practically to our, our daily life? Because, um, I mean, normally I have way more illustrations, and, you know, way more stories and um, practical side of the sermon, but um, what I'd like you to do, I've already heard a few quotes today, but I'm going to give you one more. It's from a theologian whom I respect, Alastair Roberts, a British guy, and it's important you know that he was writing this in 2014, so he's not, this is not June of 2020. This is, he's almost prophetic the way he writes about it though, but he says, of societies, ridding the social contagion of agreed-upon scapegoat is an intoxicating and powerful force for society that gives it a sense of unity. It doesn't always have to lead to the death of a victim. Um, there, there can be smaller level scapegoats, but, but we, we can see, you know, even our own propensity to smaller level scapegoating witnessed in the cycles of outrage that run through social media or in in the way that the atmosphere suddenly turns against a particular group within society, leaving them vulnerable to attack. The scapegoat mechanism can be um, at work in our attitudes toward outsiders, persons of other race, 
races, religions, to immigrants, to the extremely rich or to the, to the poor, to liberals or to conservatives. It can be found in the way that we demonize other persons, other nations. Scapegoating is a cancer found deep within our political life, affecting politics at every level, from the political conversation around the meal table to our nation's foreign policy. And scapegoating is always seeking to gravitate into our lives and into our churches. And we as Christians must learn to recognize it and resist it. Amen. We must learn to recognize and resist it because it is always, it is always satanic. You say, well, how? How in the world do we resist a wave of rage, an avalanche? And it's by imitating Jesus and his self-giving love. You know, the God of self-giving love made us in his image for relationships of self-giving love with him and with each other. Like all of our relationships, the one, the one word that should be used to describe all of our relationships is self-giving love. And if you want a few other words, forgiveness and non-retaliation, all of which we see on the cross. But instead, humanity is traded in love for power and truth for lies. And we must not. We must imitate Jesus Christ in his self-giving love. Um, I hope you realize I am not singling out any group in society today. There's no like hidden pretext in the sermon. I'm pointing a finger at them. I'm pointing a finger at them. I mean, look at scapegoating. The scapegoating mechanism happens everywhere. It, It happens on the right. It happens on the left. It happens in the middle. It happens in every society. What I'm saying is that we are members of a different kingdom and we cannot live that way. We are of a kingdom that is not from this world. And so we can never choose to operate that way. Let me provide one final um, example of this, if I can close this way. Because one of the other words that shows up in the passage is authority. If I claim to have an authority that no one has given me... um, Let's say I decide that I have the authority to arrest speeders on the road. Even if I find a way to to dress up like a traffic cop and make my vehicle look like a police car, I can't effectively exercise that authority. That's not been given to me. I mean, I might be able to get away with it for a while, but, you know, those tickets are not going to have any standing before a judge. Uh, Authority has to be uh, conferred from a higher authority. Pilate and the kingdom of the world in the passage clearly have power, but they don't have, they don't have any authority. This is the authority that has been given to Jesus. We read about it in John 10, 17 and 18. It is for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This authority I've received from my father. The father has given the son the authority to lay down his life. He is authorized by the father to do that. That is his mission. And do you know what authority Jesus has given you? It's the same. It's the same. It's the authority that the rest of the New Testament makes so clear. We have been given the authority from King Jesus to lay down our lives for others. And that, friends, 
That is the way that we will resist the world. That is the way that we will overcome the kingdom of this world. It is only in self-sacrificial love, not in scapegoating and violence. So the next time, um, the next time we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and you say the words, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, remember those two things, kingdom and scapegoat. Or I should say three things, and love. Amen.